Well, good morning. My name is Daniel Good, and it is a joy and a privilege to open God's Word with you again this morning to cover this topic with you. Last week, Dale Johnson skillfully helped us think through the whys and wherefores of asking wise questions and listening with discernment. And next week, he'll pick us back up again with a topic we're calling Call a Spade a Spade, the importance of biblical discernment or using biblical labels. And that brings us to this week's topic, which is biblical soul care in the context of relationship. And our focus this morning is going to be on loving care, being involved with others, specifically within the context of this local church. The thrust of this entire series emphasizes the importance of the local church in doing the work of the ministry as Ephesians 4.12 calls the saints to be doing. And a major part of this ministry work includes manifesting a love for others by being involved with them. And as we live next life next, and we do life next to each other and around one another within this local church, we'll naturally be doing ministry in the context of relationship. The word you in the New Testament is more often plural than singular. For example, it's you all in Galatians 6.1 who are spiritual that are called to gently restore a brother who is caught in any trespass. And at the same time, actions like gently restoring a brother and many others, many other commands get carried out by actions that are taken by individuals, by individual people, by you and me. God brought my family here into this church and this town from Virginia nearly two and a half years ago, and I can testify that during our short time here, God has used this church body to, and to minister so well to my family, and I've witnessed you all ministering well to others also. So please hear this topic coming from me this morning from a heart of encouragement to that you would continue ministering just as you are already doing and that you would excel still more. On that note, I'm very encouraged to have been hearing feedback about this series that we've been that we're about nine weeks into now, and about how helpful the series has been for you. And I can see that you've kept coming back, so it's good to see you all this morning. Mark Dever and Paul Alexander, in their book titled "The Deliberate Church," define a personal discipling relationship as meeting together and interacting with someone to do them good spiritually. And that's what we want to be doing. We are interacting, as we are interacting, life on life with one another, seeking to do spiritual good for one another. Can we just do what the world what our, in our secular culture around us does when they gather together with like-minded people? Say, for example, like on a running club to do what they do? No, no. We want to know what God's Word says about how we are to interact with one another, about doing biblical soul care in the context of relationship. Within the church, it's always critical that the content of our message and then also the method at which that message, method, that message is delivered are informed by God's revealed Word to us. And so let's, let us be encouraged then to engage in what can prove to be difficult at times, even uncomfortable or messy, but it sure is a blessing, isn't it? 
Let us not grow weary in, do, in doing good, and let us be motivated to give ourselves to this work for God's glory and for the good of others. So let's dig in and be reminded afresh what God's Word has for us. On your handout there, the top five items are some early considerations I just want to talk through up front. I have already talked about the importance of the church. Next, it's important for us to consider that the person you're interacting is the person you're interacting with a believer? Are they a believer as best as you can determine? In a church this size that has been growing during COVID, it's quite probable that unbelievers will be joining us. And as you are getting to know one another and building on existing re relationships, consider, have they responded and are they responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life? Remember that it's the film strip, not the snapshot at a point of time that we're looking at as well. And for those that are saved, the saved person does sin, but praise God that there is good fruit that flows out of a changed heart that loves Jesus. For the unsaved, the unsaved have, live a sinful life, even though they may have fake or pseudo fruit, yet without a changed heart. You can Acknowledge that we can all can acknowledge that the, uh, many Pharisees had the Torah memorized, for example. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the reality of so-called brothers within the church. And then sadly, Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 21, indicates in the Sermon on the Mount that there are some religious people who will, be who will die deceived, thinking that they are saved, but Jesus will declare that he never knew them. I'm thinking of a young man I know of who grew up in the church, not this church, but another church that back east when we were stationed there before. He was involved in a youth group. He went off to college and stayed at that church and was, minister and was uh, growing up in that church. He was involved even in leading music and singing and instrumentally he was uh, playing the guitar as well. One of the pastors was newer and as he was getting to know people who were leading worship and music um, on Sunday mornings. And he engaged with him, and he did things like what Dale taught us last week, which is asking wise questions. He listened with a discerning ear. And in God's providence, God used those interactions over time, which included the gospel, to bring that man to salvation. And now he is serving the Lord and using his talents and spiritual gifts in wonderful ways in that church. I share that story because we need to be careful just not to default to viewing everyone that we meet as a, Christ, a Christian. We want to have a grid for the possibility that someone who acts saved on the outside may not be truly saved on the inside, so that we are ready to bring the gospel to them if needed. Next, remember that the Holy Spirit is essential in the change process. We covered this in detail several weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into this, but just to say that we participate with Him in our sanctification. Next, the importance of meditation and prayer. Meditation and prayer is the bridge that helps our obedience be closer to what we know about Christ. Meditation, I'll say that again. Meditation and prayer is the bridge that helps our obedience to be closer to what we know about Christ. This really is dependent work that we are to be doing as God gives us a des the desire and the ability to live out our salvation in fear and trembling. 
The gap between what we know and what we do remains broad if we do not chew and meditate on what we are learning and then doing it or putting it into practice through dependent prayer. Next, the spiritual, the reality of spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And if you are here with us this morning, I'm thankful that Pastor Rick's going to cover that in Ephesians 6, so I don't have to do that today. But our, our three enemies, that the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, do not sleep and slumber. We're always at battle with them. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, doesn't he? Seeking those whom he may devour. It's good to remember that our war is not with who we see. And as you're interacting with someone for their spiritual good, get ready yourself. Expect that the war will be ramped up on you too as the one who is giving counsel. It's so easy, isn't it, to live with a mentality that we are not in a war zone. When I was in Fallujah, Iraq, and we were maneuvering around the cities and countryside, we were there's a lot of old broken concrete roads and dirt roads and I was keenly aware that the enemy would intentionally dig down and plant bombs in those roads to kill us. And they would wait. They would wait for a U.S. military convoy to approach, usually the smaller, anytime anyone was driving around, it would be usually at least three or four vehicles. But they planned to, they planned for us to drive over them and then detonate them on, so that they would detonate on contact via a pressure, sw- pressure switch, or maybe they would observe us from a distance and try to detonate them wirelessly. If you were unprepared or distracted, you might not detect what could otherwise be visually spotted in the road before you were right upon it. Disturbed ground or debris on the road, fresh dirt that looks different than all, the other, all of the other dirt around it is there to be seen. We were in a hostile zone, and I knew that. And brothers and sisters, I want you to remember that you too are in a hostile spiritual war zone every day. The question then becomes, are you doing battle against your own personal sin? Not someone else's sin, not your spouse's sin, or your roommate's sin, but your own sin. I don't want you to be prepared, be unprepared rather, to go to battle. And the enemy of our souls is even more intentional and cunning than what I just described. So let us be doing dependent battle against our own sin at the same time while taking courage because Jesus Christ has overcome the world, death, and the devil. So we've just covered some early considerations. And as we begin discussing the topic of loving care, being involved with others, I think we're all aware that God has, as I mentioned already, being, has been growing this church. And there are plenty of new and also not so new people for us to meet and get to know. And I pray that this lesson will help us to think carefully about our regular interactions with one another. And as we work through this lesson, as you can see on your handout, I'm going to share some biblical examples um, of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and also Paul demonstrating loving care. And we'll look at a definition and then spend most of our time thinking about ways we can convey loving care to one another in some practical ways. So first, some biblical examples. In the Old Testament, 
Yahweh exceedingly demonstrates loving care toward Israel in so many ways. We can only mention a few here this morning. Think of him selecting Israel as his chosen people, giving them the law, sending his prophets. Yet all of that, despite their almost constant rebellion and turning away from him, yet he provided for them. He made and is keeping his promises to Israel. He fought for and sustained Israel as a nation. Then in the New Testament, we can think of Jesus, of course, as the ultimate example of loving care for his people. Think of his active involvement in the plan of salvation before time began, and then carrying it out personally in the fullness of time. Think of his obedience to the Father in his incarnation leaving heaven to become a man. In his obedience to the Father during the entirety of his life and death on this earth, which includes his perfect sinless life that he lived, his substitutionary death on behalf of everyone who would ever believe, and that he accomplished all the work of the Father that the Father sent for him to do for the glory of his name and for the benefit of of those he came to save. There are innumerable ways that Jesus demonstrates loving care for us. In Hebrews 4.15, we have Jesus as a sympathetic high priest. And from Dr. Bruce Ware, he writes that we ought to be careful not to just look at Jesus' deity alone because when we do, we usually seek to depart from Jesus in all his glory and deity. We want to bow in reverence and back away But instead, we also want to, in addition, we want to also see his humanity. And it draws us close to him because he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. And that draws you close to him. Another example is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2. And grab your Bibles with me and turn there, if you will. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7. In this passage, Paul is defending his ministry, with, which is with Silas and Timothy to the Thessalonians against false allegations that had been raised against them. And he compares his care for them to the care of a nursing mother that she has for her own infants, completely vulnerable children, and also he comp- to the care that a father has toward his children as he lovingly teaches them God's ways. Read with me there on 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, he says this, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And I'll skip down to verse 11. He continues, just as you know how we were exhorting and and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, and the purpose, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is just one passage that is written to this one church and is a picture of the loving care that characterized the Apostle Paul's ministry. 
throughout Scripture, we have plenty of wonderful examples that demonstrate loving care that is given from one person to others for the recipient's spiritual good. Another one that comes to mind is Priscilla and Aquila ministering to Apollos in Acts 18. And this really goes both ways, doesn't it? Many times, as you have heard of one of our pastors mentioning that they were going to visit someone in their time of difficulty and to minister them, minister to them for their spiritual good, but what actually happened is that person ministered to the heart of the pastor or the elder as, they as that person expresses their overarching and steadfast faith and belief in God and His promises, or even in their weakness as they continue to trust in God, though they are in the midst of a very great difficulty. Next, let's look at a definition of loving care. It's always good to have a definition to try to put words down to summarize or describe what we're talking about. The definition of loving care is there on your handout. That It's building Christ-like relationships within the church where you put yourself in a position to help each other know and love God and love others. Building Christ-like relationships within the church where you put yourself in a position to help each other know and love God and love others. And working through some of the components of this definition, there are some references there, but Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the words of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And verse 9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Matthew 22 is where we get the, are given the two great commands that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love others is the quick summary of that as you've heard before. Then also in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, we are to sacrificially love each other as Christ loved the church. It's not just for husbands, which comes a few verses later in verse 25. So flip over there, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians 5, verse 1. I just want you to see this. Verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? We're to do it sacrificially. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So if God has forgiven you, as we pull in the context from the last verse of chapter four, chapter five starts off with therefore. Therefore, since God in Christ has forgiven you, you are to imitate God and to walk in love and you are to live in such a way that is sacrificially oriented to the spiritual good of others. And as you referenced that, the definition again, I'll put a different emphasis on it this time, that it's building Christ-like relationships within the church where you put yourself in a position to help each other to know and love God and to love others. Just a brief side note before we move on, if you're getting to know someone and they've expressed a credible profession of faith, take them at their word until time and evidence would seem to demonstrate otherwise. Secondly, if the person is admittedly an unbeliever, we still want to engage with them, and several of these items below will still apply, but our efforts are really turned to evangelism at that point. 
We want to help an unbeliever see that their ultimate need is salvation from the wrath of a holy God for their sin in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't want to help them clean up their life, so to speak. We'd only be helping to turn them into a good Pharisee, for example. So evangelism is critical. At that point, it becomes our emphasis. And this brings us to the next portion of our outline, which you might be saying, well, how am I supposed to show loving care? Um, I mean, I tell my Christian friends, I love you all the time. I think I'm good here. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is another opportunity for us to hear again, yet again, that biblical love is an obedient attitude or action. It's more of an obedient attitude or action than it is a feeling or an emotion. And that's the way I've divided this up, uh, this next section up. I've grouped these items together as attitudes to have and actions to take. And we can glean much instruction from God's Word and about how we are to convey loving care toward others. First, in attitude, be available. Let's be available. Paul, in Acts 20, tells us that night and day for a period of three years, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He was talking to the Ephesian elders before he had left, departed for Jerusalem. And I'm seeking to emphasize here Paul's availability in his loving care that he showed to the Ephesians. He's, the, the specifics here are descriptive rather than prescriptive, meaning that we don't need to serve night and day every day for three years in order to follow Paul's example. But he was available. He was ministered in the evenings. He ministered during the day. We know he had a job. And he ministered with a genuine love, with tears. For us, be wise with a, uh, and be a good steward of the time that God has given you so that you can live decently and with your life in order, but where others do not sense that you are on a rigid schedule. This makes you available and approachable. Now, if you say yes to every situation at the same time there, you may be pulled in too many directions, leading to chaos in your life. It is helpful to know that every need in the, is not a divine call on your life, specifically. You aren't the answer to everybody's needs. But thinking of Jesus, he walked decently and in order, but he was approachable. We can also think of even the Good Samaritan who couldn't remain on the scene the whole time. He made provision, and then he came back, didn't he? So be available. Next, express confidence in the Christian's ability to obey Scripture. Express confidence in the Christian's ability to obey Scripture. Christians have the mind of Christ, and they have an ability to obey God's commands, which comes from the Holy Spirit. And they have other believers around them in the church who are also an influence on them. And as they're reading God's Word, God's Word is powerful and they can read it. And that also influences them for sure. Remember that a true believer is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, 11 tells us. You know this. We covered that, I think, last time I was teaching in detail. And this reality is why they are no longer slaves to sin, but rather are slaves to righteousness. Now, in a struggle against sin, we may need to remind them of that. Help someone remember that they're no longer a slave to sin, but are a slave to righteousness. 
But at the same time, the scriptures, when you minister God's word to someone, they will impact that person's life in accordance with God's purposes. And a true believer is able to respond in obedience. So express confidence in their ability to obey God as you're interacting with them. Next, we want to be able to receive disagreements or be prepared to receive disagreements without being defensive. That's really hard sometimes, I think. How do you think about your own response? How do you tend to respond when someone sins against you, to your face? Maybe they're even in anger, they sin against you. But to a lesser degree, maybe they just disagree with you. Is your tendency to get hot under the collar yourself? As we interact intentionally for the spiritual good of others, there will come a point where conflict will emerge. And at this point, and this point seeks to help you be prepared to respond obediently in that moment. Second Timothy 2.2 is a wonderful passage to instruct us on this matter. So let's turn there as well. Grab your Bibles and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. Second Timothy 2.24. And as you're interacting with others who are also sinners like you and me, it's helpful to have a grid in advance that they might sin against you and their response to you, especially if they're feeling conviction from the Holy Spirit about what you're discussing, even if you're speaking the truth to them in a loving way. And for this passage, though the context of this passage is Paul giving instruction to Timothy, a young pastor, and that being able to teach is mentioned here. However, that's a giftedness and a spiritual ability that sets elders apart. All believers are also, who are even not, who are not pastors, are able to make application from it. So let's read that, uh, verses 24 to 26. It says this, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our focus here is on those few phrases, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So notice the implication there, that we are to expect personal conflict to emerge, and that we are to be prepared to rightly respond to it. This can be hard, and it might not be your normal response to conflict, but we all need to be growing in this area especially because we love one another. Next, let's keep, we want to keep being motivated by God's love for you in Christ. Keep being motivated by God's love for you in Christ. And let that motivation, God's love for you in Christ, be what keeps driving you to spend and be expended for the benefit of others. Because you have been loved much and have been forgiven much in Christ, you can keep being motivated to show loving care to others, even when it's hard. 
And then a final attitude. Remember that God is working on your sanctification as well. This takes humility, and we are all in progress. The Holy Spirit is always working on your spiritual growth, even while you're helping someone else think through or think biblically about a difficult circumstance they're in. There really are no accidental scenarios or conversations in which we find ourselves. Have you ever thought that even the opportunities that God brings your way to minister to others are designed for your good as much as it is for theirs? I think many of you have probably experienced this as you've been speaking with someone. The very topic you're discussing is an area of growth that you have been working on or that you need to be working on or want to be working on a little bit more. Oftentimes we can relate to that struggle. In addition, I don't want you to become, we don't want to become someone's spiritual guru or it's not like I'm up here and you're down here or this, this sort of a, I'm over you kind of relationship. Rather, it's that God calls us to come alongside one another as fellow sufferers and sinners, which, end up, which ends up sharpening both people. So may God give us humble minds to remember that he is always at work in us as well. Next, some actions to help us convey loving care toward others. We've just talked about several attitudes, and those attitudes will also lead to different actions you'll take, but here are a few actions that we can be thinking about in particular. The first one is that we want to show compassion. The more we ourselves are moved with compassion regarding the plight of another person, the more we will be ready and able to minister to them So let's be preparing ourselves now. Jesus was compassionate, and we could say that compassion marked his life. Matthew 9 is just one passage that describes Jesus having compassion on people, and that compassion led to loving action that he took on their behalf. In Matthew 9, 34, it says that, it says, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus observed and saw the crowds and had compassion for them. He had compassion for them because he saw them from their perspective. We could say that he put himself in their shoes. They were harassed. They were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' compassion for them led him to take action. He was preaching the gospel. He was teaching the disciples to do the same. And then he commanded his disciples in verse 38, Therefore pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out additional laborers into his harvest. Have you ever shared something with someone about a struggle that you were having and it just seems like they didn't connect with you? Or maybe they just came across as uncaring? 
If you felt that, you can see that showing genuine compassion to the person in the midst of their struggle is a key component to conveying loving care to them. And also consider that Jesus, who never sinned, put himself in their shoes and saw them as they were and had genuine compassion for them. How much more ought we who are sinful be willing to put ourselves in the shoes of others as they communicate a difficulty to us or temptations that they are working through? Lest we forget that we too have our own struggles and that we gave in to some temptation earlier that same day, quite probably. So let's recall our definition once more. Building Christ-like relationships within the church where you put yourself in a position to help each other to know and love God and to love others. One more element under compassion is that it includes being patient with everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that we are to be impatient, to be patient with all as we are all in different places in our spiritual maturity and growth. If the Spirit has matured you and grown you in some area of wisdom or has strengthened you in a biblical conviction that you now hold firmly, then praise God and remember that it wasn't so long ago that this was not the case. Next, let's, we want to observe limited confidentiality. Observe limited confidentiality. And with this one, the point is that someone may come to you and ask you to maintain strict or absolute confidentiality about something they are about to tell you. Be careful about granting that strict confidentiality because there are some things, depending on what is shared, that should not be kept between the two of you. I'm going to give you at least four situations where it may be necessary to share information with others. First, you may need to seek advice. When you're uncertain about how to address a particular problem and you need to seek advice from another Christian or elder, and one way to do that is just flatten out the details of the person that you're talking with. They don't need to know who that person is, perhaps, and you can flatten out details and still ask for advice. Second, if there's potential harm to someone, potential harm to someone, when there is a clear indication that someone may be harmed unless others intervene or are consulted. Thirdly, a refusal to repent. When a person refuses to renounce a certain particular, a particular sin and confess it to those impacted, it becomes necessary to seek the assistance of others within the church to encourage, to encourage repentance and confession and reconciliation. A wonderful grace of God that he has given to us within the church. And fourthly, criminal activity. When criminal activity has occurred and the person refuses to bring it to the attention of the authorities, you may need to share that with someone else outside of you and the person who told you. Don't be like Jephthah, who made a vow to Yahweh in his religious hypocrisy going before, uh, before going out to battle against the Ammonites, saying that if God would give him victory when he comes home, he would offer whatever comes out of his doors as a burnt sacrifice upon his victorious return. And if you know that story, his one and only daughter did come out and he sacrificed her sadly. He should never have made that vow. But since, we, since out for us, our yes, we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no, determine ahead of time that it is loving care for the individual involved, 
for the individuals involved not to grant strict confidentiality. Instead, instead of fearing that person, that this person may become upset with you, fear God who has actual authority over you and seek to follow his commands. And if you end up having already affirmed uh, to someone strict confidentiality, then you can go back and explain to that person that it is out of a love for them and others that you can't continue to do that any longer. Next, be honest. If someone says, hey, I'm struggling in this particular area, do you ever struggle with that? Uh, Be honest. Also be wise to share what you should with uh, them, to identify with them. And at the same time, be careful to not take over the conversation talking about your own experience. And another element of being honest is that if you don't know what to do next or you don't know how to answer them, then say so. Be honest and then go to God and ask him for wisdom, as James 1 tells us. Search the scriptures and pray some more and then maybe even consult with a more mature believer. Next is model fruit of the Spirit. Model fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul commands us to imitate him as he is like Christ. And we know that Paul was an exemplary example to follow in his post-conversion life, though he still struggled with sin. What about you? As you live out your Christian life, are you modeling the fruit of the Spirit? Is it being put on display for the watching world because of your faithful obedience? Or is it the fruit of the flesh that is on display? It's hard to give away what you don't have, and so we always want to be growing in godliness. And if you're a believer, you do have spiritual fruit, but the point is, is what, what is what is evident? Are you growing in that? And that's what we want to provoke. I can't teach someone about self-control if I don't have self-control myself. Also mercy and also kindness. Parents with children know this for sure. I often think of an application of James 1.20 as I'm seeking to raise my children God's way. James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If I'm modeling anger, I'm not going to be helping in the effort to produce righteousness. So where there is spiritual fruit, and if, where there is spiritual fruit, and if someone praises you for your character, be quick to give glory to God. You might think, wow, I mean, have you ever met me? I mean, what you see in me is just a dim reflection of God in me. Anything that you see in me is just a, the Spirit's work. So give glory to God. Be quick to give glory to God. We can remember that modeling spiritual fruit does increase progressively as we cooperate with the Spirit in our sanctification. And as you're faithfully living for the Lord, may it be that He finds it desirable to be using you as an instrument in His hands for the benefit of others. Next, we want to pray with them and for them. Pray with the person, pray for the person. In doing so, you model how to pray, and as you go to God, or as you go to God on their behalf, your faith and your theology comes out in your prayers. We can even extol God for the evidences of his work that you already see in that person. 
We can listen to them pray. It's helpful to know how they are praying and what they are asking for because their faith and their theology, their beliefs also come out in their prayers. Our church leadership's Leadership demonstrates this all the time in their prayers, don't they? And we can be listening to our pastors and elders as they, pray, as they pray publicly and be learning from them. The acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, is a helpful way to align our prayers with God and His plans. That stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And as you have spent time praising and adoring God and confessing your sins of omission and also of commission and giving thanks to Him, that is really helpful in aligning your request to God and what His plans are and what His will is. That's a wonderful way to to model prayers, sort of to follow that that acronym, which is um, developed from the way the Lord taught the disciples to pray. And last but not least, communicate hope. Communicate hope. You want to inspire the person to endure and to press on. And like all of the other items above, this takes place in an ongoing way. This really deserves its full lesson in, in and of itself. There's so much we could talk about here. And I've put some extra notes down here for you because I wasn't sure how much time I would have to cover everything, but I want to leave a few basics for you. First, we want to give, giving hope is important because if you don't have hope, you don't tend to persevere. We can give hope in the way we speak to people and how we model it in our own lives and in the things that we are trusting in as we communicate with others. A definition of hope is on your handout there. It's an effectual confidence in who God is and what He has promised in regard to the future with present-day implications to holiness. We all need hope, and true biblical hope produces confidence because it is based upon God. It's based upon who He is and what He has done and what He has promised to do. God's promises are as good as done. He doesn't lie, and He is all-powerful to bring them about. We have God's promises for the present, For example, like how his people are more valuable to him than birds or grass from Matthew 6. And if he feeds the birds and he clothes the grass with beautiful flowers, how much more will he feed and clothe his people and provide for them now? We also have God's promises in regard to the future, that Christ will return and that he will snatch away his people to live with him forever in glory. And because of those precious and very great promises, we can live faithfully now with confidence as we persevere through the joys and difficulties of living in this fallen world as we seek to do God's will. And we need to be reminded of this hope from time to time also, don't we? Next, we want to avoid giving empty hope. Empty hope is due to wrong goals that aren't grounded in Scripture. It denies reality. Empty hope does not does not focus on what is true. It also is due to mystical thinking. It is not, empty hope is not based on what God has said, but rather that person's thoughts or feelings. Rather, we want to give true hope that points the person to Jesus. 
true hope that results in, is a result of salvation that is based upon Scripture, and I'm just going to go quickly here toward the end. It's realistic that God does ordain all things for the good of His people, and that in doing so, He is conforming His people more and more into the image of Christ. True hope is a choice in focusing on God and His promises. And we just reviewed a few of those, or for some of those from Matthew 6. And it's also based on what we know. It's based upon what God has specially revealed to us in the Scriptures. So, so biblical soul care takes place in the context of relationship, and it is rooted in Christ, and as, as God's saints do the work of the ministry within the church. Next week, Dale will be ministering to us, as I mentioned, on the importance of biblical discernment or biblical labels. Let's pray, and you'll be dismissed. Oh, Father, thank you for your word and for your church. Grow us in our love for you and our love for others and cause that love to manifest itself in loving relationships that seek to do spiritual good for others. Use our attitudes and our actions in this way and may you do it all for the glory of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.